0: It is Supreme Court rundown time. History and democracy are still grappling with and adjusting to the 2022 Supreme Court term. From the Dobbs decision removing federal protection of abortions to West Virginia versus EPA, curtailing the EPA's ability to regulate energy. The New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case stated that stayed in its strict limits on carrying guns and public violated the Second Amendment. What might the Roberts and Trump Supreme Court do for an encore? Why do I say the Trump Court? Well, Trump appointed more Supreme Court justices than any one-term president since Herbert Hoover, a time that led to the Lochner era that attempted to limit the power of public structures as a precursor to the New Deal. Well, for 2023, the court made decisions that run the gamut from assuring democracy in the United States to a precedent allowing discrimination against minorities by private businesses. The 2023 Supreme Court will also be remembered for what happened outside the docket with the details of justices living some high life on Rich Guys dime, Joining us today to help unpack and analyze is Joshua Douglas, professor of law from the University of Kentucky, contributor to the Washington Monthly, author of the upcoming book, The Voters Versus Supreme Court, a troubling story of how the Supreme Court has undermined voting rights. That will be released next June. Also, the author of the 2019 book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Thanks for joining us, Professor Douglas, and welcome to Democracy Nerd.
1: Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here.
0: We're about a month from the Supreme Court beginning its next term with initial arguments heard the first Monday in October, I think you can correct me, not yet having the benefit of the hindsight to reflect on the term looking backwards and looking forwards. Any earth-shaking decisions that'll be remembered in the future by a single name, similar to the Dobbs in the previous term, or Roe, or Lochner, or Dred Scott, et cetera. Anything that gets the share building, billing, excuse me.
1: Well, I'm not sure if the name itself will be memorable, but what happened in the affirmative action case, I think, is probably the biggest blockbuster for changing the scope of um of a lot of how society operates so the case is called students for fair admissions um doesn't have kind of a one name one word ring to it um sfa fa but uh what the court said in striking down university affirmative action plans and the implications of that as well as um, potentially its extension to all areas of society that you know you can't essentially have um consider race in in admissions and potentially in hiring and other areas, depending on how far the doctrine goes. um, I think that is probably the biggest and and most important case for overturning precedent and for the functioning of, of today's society.
0: As we understand the court where we are now, I'd welcome you to put it in history of how you'd compare it with other courts in American history. And also maybe related to that is, Where do we think of the center of the court? Now, I will say that I think the pursuit of centrism, if one pursues it as an ideology, is a fool's errand, because then your beliefs are structured and decided by whomever decides to adopt a particular extreme, and then you'll move in that direction. That said, in counting votes and what it takes to win the Supreme Court is five votes. and counting votes, understanding who that fifth vote is and who your fourth vote is is pretty important. Is now the center of that Supreme Court Brett Kavanaugh, the person who vowed revenge from the bench during his nomination process? How do you characterize this court in history and how do you kind of lay it out?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're probably right that the center is either Kavanaugh or Chief Justice Roberts. Um, And, you know, I teach my students, I say, what's the number one way to win a case at the Supreme Court? And the answer is count to five. Right. So you're absolutely right that that is, you know, what, litigants and and lawyers who argue before the court are thinking about and, you know, law professors thinking about how the doctrine will move. So, and in this court, I think it's pretty clear that you've got three justices uh, on kind of the far extreme right with um, Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch. Uh, You've got three justices on the liberal side with um, Kagan Sotomayor and Justice Jackson. And so you have three that were sort of either in the middle or trying to figure out. So Justice Amy Coney Barrett, um, we don't know for sure you know, how far right she'll go, but it seems like she's placing herself a little bit more in the the conservative moderate side, along with Roberts and Kavanaugh. So I still think this is Chief Justice Roberts's court, ultimately. But, but here's the other thing I'll say, which I think is really important historically, thinking about the U.S. Supreme Court, is that the number one project of the court right now seems to be to aggrandize its own power, that is to say, to to make itself the most important actor in constitutional adjudication and in democracy. Um, and and I think it, doing so in a way that a lot of courts in the past have not done, and I think that's particularly dangerous. When it gets to areas like voting rights and uh, democratic representation, and and all other areas um, that you know matter so much to the way our society functions, today's court is, I think, the Roberts court, but it's also the court of keeping power for itself to decide all these important matters.
0: So let's get into that. One case that comes to mind is Moore versus Harper. We talked about that with the Brennan Center for Justice a couple of episodes ago that the term of the so-called independent state legislative theory is not a real thing, uh, that uh, what hung in the balance there uh, was uh, included the court's ability and, and court's ability generally to hold primacy. Uh, make your case that this court is not only aggrandizing its ability to take trips without disclosing them, but is taking its opportunity to aggrandize its own power.
1: Well, here's an interesting case that a lot of people thought the court wouldn't decide, uh, actually, because this was reviewing the North Carolina Supreme Court that had struck down the state's really egregious partisan gerrymander. Um, And so then the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case after the North Carolina Supreme Court on a 4-3 vote along partisan lines, because the the North Carolina court elects its justices by party labels. So on a 4-3 Democratic majority in February 2022, um, struck down the state's map., uh, and the u s. Supreme Court agreed to hear that case. But then the North Carolina had elections for the Supreme Court, and two new members came on, flipping the court from four three Democrat to five two Republican. Um And then within a month, that five uh, majority republican state Supreme Court said it was going to reverse itself. Um uh, first, it said it's going to rehear the case, and then it ultimately issued an opinion reversing itself and saying no the state constitution does not protect voters in the way that the court had previously said, um, and that it essentially upheld the map. And so there's really, in many ways, no controversy left for the US Supreme Court to decide, um, or at least a lot of people thought the court would dismiss the case as moot. Um, and yet the court decided to hear it, uh, or decided to issue an opinion on the merit. So that's just one little example of how the court you know, decided, look, it's gonna, it's gonna issue a, a ruling on this case. And then when it did issue that ruling, and here's where we get really concerning, is you know the initial uh, media commentary, um, and certainly among a lot of people on the left, were sort of breathing a sigh of relief because the court seemed to reject this independent state legislature theory and seemed to say, you know, no state courts can use their state constitutions to strike down state voting laws. Um, but then Roberts added this sentence towards the end in which he said, but hold up. There could be at times when state courts go too far, where they uh, overstep the ordinary bounds of judicial review. He didn't say what that means. He said, we get to decide, decide what that means in a future case. So the court is giving itself full power to still review a ruling of a state court under the state constitution. Normally, we'd say, you know, the state Supreme Court is the highest uh, authority of, of state yeah. law and state constitutions. I mean, here the the you know, Justice Roberts is uh, saying, you know, we get to keep this case or decide a case in the future. So, in two instances, that Moore versus Harper case exemplify the ways in which the court is keeping as much power for itself as it can.
0: Yeah. So the Moore case, Clear one uh, that makes that case. What else? Where else should we be looking for, as you say, where the where the court is not only uh, demonstrating its strength but trying to build its own strength.
1: Well, I mean, you mentioned a couple of cases from the, the, the term before this past one. I think the Bruin case on on gun rights is a particularly egregious example of this, because, you know, normally on Second Amendment issues, the court would say, OK, there's a right to uh, to firearms to, to, you know, in the court in the D.C. versus Heller case back in 2010 said that the Second Amendment includes an individual right. But still, that left the door open for normal constitutional Adjudication where the state can provide a justification for its law, right? So, you know, okay, there's a right to possess guns, but the state has a good enough reason in this circumstance. In the Bruin case, the court said states aren't even allowed to do that anymore, that the only kind of regulation allowed is one that's protected within history and tradition. So the court basically said we're now historians as well, and that states you have no authority to regulate guns except for when we decide history and tradition. Allowed it so that was you know the, the previous term. In this current term, um, we see several cases again where the court says essentially we get to decide, and um, you know whether it comes to the Voting Rights Act case that I know we're going to talk about, um, where the court you know seemingly issued a good ruling, but actually embedded within it is some some concerning things. Whether it's in the affirmative action case, um, in all these situations, the court is saying we get to be the final deciders of uh, how far the The government can regulate or how um, robust these individual rights, which we thought had been protected, uh, continue to be protected. And of course, you mentioned Dobbs and abortion, another good example of that as well.
0: So George will advocated for one of his books advocated for a new Lochner era. I have predicted one that we will sort of see a roughly speaking hundred year echo of history. Is that a? As you read the court now, is that an overstatement? Where do you where do you land on kind of where this court will position itself in history if and as it is i won't say if it is as it is as you say sort of building its own building its own muscles expending its own power projecting power into the pacific and the atlantic
1: i yeah i mean i i tend to agree that um you know you already have a couple of justices with respect to lochner itself um justice thomas in particular who has uh, has you know uh, you know said that he thinks the the court's jurisprudence should go in that direction. Um, you know, I think that of course the court is very conservative, so it'll you know many ways this is ideology playing itself out, and we're getting you know conservative results guised in some doctrine that you know the court is trying to suggest we're being consistent. But when you look at it, there's a lot of inconsistencies. I think the number one thing to to um, think about with respect to that question, is the readiness with which the court is willing to overturn precedent, right? You know, the the court's tradition has been to follow its rulings. um, And, you know, many justices in history have said, you know, both that I hope I don't personally agree with every ruling I issue, because that means that I'm just being political, um, that, you know, the law could be something that is different from what their personal beliefs are, and that they will rule uh, in a way that's Consistent with precedent, even if they disagree, um, and you sort of don't see the court doing that uh, in on any of the justices anymore. Um, they're very willing to overturn precedent they don't like. Um, the past two terms have seen that with Dobbs overturning um, Roe v. Wade, with the affirmative action case overturning um, the uh, prior cases. You know, and as recently as from two thousand and three. Um, and then again, leaving the door open to overturn a precedent as well. So I think this is a court that is, as you put it, you know, trying to flex its muscles a lot, and it it basically is rejecting any barriers, um, traditional barriers to doing so, including things like adhering to precedent.
0: The Dobbs decision is such a, such a uh, famous one. That's a lazy that's a lazy sentence. Uh, such a notable one that, uh, as we saw for decades, we were hearing. The conservative uh, judicial movement, the conservative electoral movement, arguing against judicial activism. The answer, of course, then by uh, the Federalist Society trained responders to ju- Senate Judiciary Committee questioning when asked about Roe versus Wade would say Roe versus Wade is standing precedent. If you took those two things together, oh, the Federal Society project is supposed to be against ju- uh, judicial activism and it is standing precedent well put those two things in a mixing bowl what do you get well about the status quo maybe nibble around the edges instead they left out the sentence where they said it is standing precedent and i am here in order to eviscerate it eliminate it and change precedent for all time and eliminate one's right to choose uh so in terms of strengthening the court's power maybe one of the most historically important examples you said another thing you brought up students for fair admissions versus Harvard. Let's go into that case a little bit. Got an affirmative action for colleges to consider race as a specific factor for student admissions. What either surprised you? What do you find most notable or, 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 or interesting or at least most uh, sort of importantly actionable moving forward?
1: So there's a lot of things uh, about that case that are concerning and, and maybe surprising. But you know the first thing I note is that You know, my students, when I teach this case um, and I taught the cases previously, um, you know, the affirmative action cases, a lot of uh, law students coming in don't really understand what affirmative action actually is and what the, the, the parameters and permutations are. A lot of people think it's, you know, for for college admissions, colleges have set aside a certain number of seats for racial minorities. And, you know, back as far back as the mid 1970s, the Supreme Court had, re- had rejected that approach of a quota. So affirmative action in, you know, before the SFF case um, is where a admissions team has to look at each application holistically and can use use race as one factor among many. To enhance the classroom environment for all, essentially. So, you know, just like in the courts, used the, had used the example of like, you know, someone who's a virtuoso violin player adds something different to the classroom mix. And someone who uh, has an underprivileged background or who's a racial minority also adds something interesting to the mix. And, and admissions team can look at that holistically. And that's essentially what the court had said in 2003. So now you get to this Harvard case where um, Harvard has, had been very careful in North Carolina. It was two different uh, cases, companion cases. And both schools have been very careful about the ways in which they use race. It was not a quota. There was not a certain percentage of minorities uh, as the goal. Um, it was, okay, one's status as a racial minority is a factor that can be considered in uh, the use of, uh, in admissions. And, you know, this has been a project from the right to try to dismantle, Um, Any sort of racial preferences in American society, Um, uh, this guy named Ed Bloom and engineered a lot of these cases, including the Shelby County Voting Rights Act case from 2013, as well as the affirmative action cases. So um, it's important to, to when thinking about what the court did in striking down the Harvard plan is understanding that the Harvard plan was, you know, use race somewhat minimally and also in a very individualistic fashion. And the court basically said you can't do that either. Um, now, you could kind of figure out end runs around it. Um, strangely, you asked what was most surprising. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts threw in a little uh, aside in the opinion that said, you know, you could still ask people to write essays about their backgrounds, and that might include race when they discuss in their own personal reflections. Um, so, you know, instead of being a slightly more explicit that, look, having racial diversity in the, the nation's colleges and universities is a good thing. Uh, now we have to, you know, if we're trying to still achieve that, if the so in a way that we're going to sort of with a nod and a wink, try to achieve the same goal.
0: So I'm jumping probably too far ahead, but it does some of what, and maybe there's my own emotional reaction. It's certainly informed by that, that. Are we getting to a place where it just feels like the Supreme court project is looking more and more like hogwash that the, that, they'll write a bunch of words and they'll cite some stuff and some of that might be really old stuff and they'll ultimately though, just kind of do the thing they want to do. Is that a, uh, that it is, it's a nine member legislature with people who get to sit there for life and less tethered to some uh, some mast of of constitution or some mast of legislative power, some mast of uh, of, of uh, limitation of their role. Am I am I too much? The sky is falling.
1: I mean, I- I'm not with you all the way there yet in terms of the feeling that these are solely politicians in robes, um, and especially because you know the court does hear. You know, Well, it used to be a lot more. Now it's like 60 to 70 cases a year. Um, it used to be, you know, not even that long ago, 80 to 90. Um, so in a lot of these cases, the law really does matter and it impacts people. It's just not in the public consciousness as much. Um, so I think, you know, when we're talking about that emotional reaction and, and politics sort of driving everything, we're talking about a, a few cases each year. Of course, those few cases have really outsized importance. Um, and then the second thing I'd say is that, um, you know, I tell my law students that the best answer to any question, as especially if they're struggling when they're, you know, on call in classes, it depends. Um, and so I think the answer is it depends, right? On some issues, it's undeniable that the court is just reaching the, the uh, answer it wants and then kind of backing into it by throwing some legal doctrine in. In other areas, I you know, there's, I mean, perhaps some consistency here. Um, you know, some of the some of the decisions are not completely out of left field. Um, I mean, I think the gun rights case we talked about, the Bruin case, that one maybe is because it's so different from any approach that the court had made previously. Um, uh, you know, is overturning precedent because they don't like the result previously solely politicians in robes? Maybe. Um, so that's a wishy-washy answer to. To your question, uh, I think it is very concerning and and it explains why there's a legitimacy crisis uh, with the court right now as well.
0: You make not only a fair couple of points, but also one that is is at least one that's worth underscoring, which is of the many decisions, there are a lot of six to three decisions, but there are still nine to nothing decisions. Right, there are still decisions that are made where there's a statute or there's a law, and they sort of interpret the statute and they uh, resolve a disagreement among uh, among circuit courts, and it's sort of business as usual. And I, but I do not say that to diminish the departure from the, the degree to which we have an activist conservative court, but at least to acknowledge uh, an underscore point that you made. Sticking with students for fair admission, sticking with that case, uh, i I'd, I'd feel remiss if I didn't bring up. Uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson's uh, dissent. Uh, you might have impressions of now Justice Jackson's first full term on the bench, which I think we just have now been through. Uh, also, though, on the issue front, is it fair to say the issues she raised in her minority opinion have led to, directly or indirectly, the legal action taken to target legacy admissions by Ivy League colleges?
1: Well, so Justice Jackson's uh, dissenting opinion is incredible, Um, incredibly well researched. Uh, It's a tour de force of the history of, you know, racial relations and the use of affirmative action and the strides that have been made because of affirmative action. That's the sort of thing. And she writes in such a beautiful way that is understandable to non-lawyers. Um, without trying to be too flashy in doing so. It's the sort of thing that I do think everyone should read um, uh, because it is just so well done. Um, You know, that was one of the big things that a lot of people were criticizing Harvard for is, okay, you're going to use affirmative action to help certain people. And yet, you know, you're essentially allowing it easier for white elites to get in through the use of legacy admissions. I don't know if it's Jackson's opinion that has led to the uh, the challenges or just the very fact that, you know, this was sort of lurking in the background of the case all along. And so I'm not surprised that that's, you know, the next tactic to essentially open up more seats by getting rid of the legacy preferences. Um, but, you know, but she made the point in such an elegant uh, and eloquent way that, uh, you know, I see what you're saying with respect to why it sort of became a catalyst for that uh, that next push here on this issue
0: as a smaller point maybe but you might just help me understand something help us understand something uh, can you help explain why the supreme court's decision does not apply to military schools
1: as they said so i mean and this is a great example of where the court is just you know taking power for itself to decide some things and other not other things now, now from a legal technical perspective the uh only uh issue in the case was college and university admissions. And, you know, you had you know, University of North Carolina uh, and Harvard plans being challenged and military schools are are not, you know, we're not part of the litigation. So just from a, you know, technical legalese standpoint, the military schools were not part of the case. Um, that said, she was Roberts- a
0: brown cow instead of a, you know, instead of yeah, a white cow.
1: Exactly. I mean, and, and so Justice Roberts said, you know, well, military schools are not involved here, and though they present different considerations, there was a brief, um, uh, an amicus brief that was filed by military schools, basically saying, you know, don't don't touch us because there's national security implications involved in uh, in the formation of of the military, and so that's different from sort of reg- so-called regular schools, I guess. Um, but that's a great example of Roberts just sort of deciding to decide or deciding not to decide. Um, because he said so. um it's it's hard to find a principled reason for it,
0: and it does, you know the I would the thing that often comes to my mind is I think back to Rehnquist, right? who Rehnquist whose first interactions were as a political person, right? Not merely as a as a judicial person. And the uh, and that I do think that modern Supreme Court justices are, Politicians. I'm not going to say merely politicians, and that's not even a knock. I think the politicians do important things, Uh, but the but it, it sort of just read to me like. Oh, well, the military is kind of a friend of the conservative movement, kind of. It's kind of what, you know, if I ra- was raised in the era of Reagan, maybe I don't want to mess with them. And, and it really did sort of seem like the kind of thing a Senate would do just create a carve out, right? Because some constituency that was part of your constituency would ask of you. And then you say, okay, yeah, we can put that in the bill. And that's what it seemed to be. But again, you know, I, I may look through this too much as, through my legislative lens and too little through my, you know, sort of legal lens.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, th- there is a, you can make an argument for why it's different, right? Because you know, Harvard and UNC are not necessarily sending all their graduates into the military. Um, and, you know, serving in the military is kind of a unique thing that requires a different set of considerations, especially, Which, you know,
0: you And the there court, I mean, th- therefore it should have discriminate. If his argument is therefore it should have to, like the, 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 his big quote, the best way to uh, stop, what was that? I want to make sure I get the best rate to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. So it's OK if the military does it. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I just yeah. kind of don't understand.
1: So so the one thing I'll also say is that there is a line of Supreme Court case law in which the court has said we defer even more to military judgment. Sure. Um, you know, we don't we don't have the expertise in national security and military things. And so you know, essentially we're going to trust the, the elected branches and trust Congress even more so in this area than we would in others. Um, again, I'm not saying that necessarily correct, but at least you could make the legal argument that this carve out is consistent with that other uh, line of case law. But I think your point is well taken that, you know, Roberts decided he didn't want to, you know, answer that question. And so he didn't. Now, he would say he was being minimal, minimalist, um, uh, you know, but then again, he, you know, overturned, uh, precedence that, you know, even though that 2003 case said, we think, you know, this was sort of made up by Justice O'Connor in the 2003 case on Michigan's affirmative action. But she said, we think, you know, 25 years, we maybe won't need affirmative action anymore. And it's been 20 years. Um, so, uh, you know, I think I think it was problematic. So racism
0: for, will be we won't be raised anymore in five more years. We just have to wait yeah, five I mean, years. Uh, I,
1: mean, I think it was problematic for O'Connor to put that 25 year thing in. And it was yeah. that really legislating from the bench. Um, But that said, you know, the court didn't even wait the 25 years to get rid of those decisions.
0: Right. Let's keep on with the rundown. Let's go to the 303 creative case. The majority determined that the First Amendment allows private business owners to deny services to LGBT or LGBTQ sexual minorities. Uh, Colorado State Law had asserted no members of the public could be denied service by businesses. And the Supreme Court said what?
1: Uh, I mean, yes, you can deny services uh, essentially is what the court said um that you know uh and it's what's weird about this case is that it was couched as a first amendment compelled speech case right that Lori smith this uh website designer uh was saying she didn't want to be forced to make a website which is for speech similar to the, the baker in colorado who said you know the my wedding cakes i bake are a form of art uh, but of course lurking in the background of this is religious liberty that Lori yeah. smith said she wasn't going to do it because uh she you know to her, supporting same-sex marriage would violate her religion, and the court basically said, "Yeah, that that's okay." Um, and it raises lots of implications for what kind of discrimination is allowed. Um, ones that the court really didn't answer in that decision.
0: No, and I'll be a little less glib here. That I do see, uh, I, I do read, and I anticipate the expansion—not just of freedom of speech, but the, but the expansion of the word speech. Uh, to be one of the primary moves that a modern Lochner Court is using shall use will use to flex its muscles, to strengthen its power, to eliminate, to to block the ability of a Colorado legislature to protect rights or to uh, or to legislate for the social welfare and and not just you in the context of of political contributions, but now in the in the circumstance of cakes and websites uh, saying, no, no, commerce is speech. We will say that various elements of commerce is speech. And if we can make commerce speech, then you can't block it. That That could have all sorts of implications. How do you read and anticipate, feel free to push back on that, amplify it, add texture, disagree?
1: I think you're absolutely right actually that this court has been not only very protective of speech in general but expansive in how it understands speech. And this is not a new thing from the 303 creative case. You know, we can look at uh Citizens United from 2010 um you know which obviously allows corporations to engage in political speech in a way that they had not previously um and you know throughout a whole suite of uh, regulations in which it essentially has, um, uh, strikes down lots of different, uh, speech regulations when it comes to, you know, uh, even things like violent video games that California was trying to regulate. So, uh, I think you're absolutely right. And, and this is another example of it. I mean, I think it's an open question. Yeah. I, I think it should be an open question, uh, whether a wedding website that someone designs, um, is speech. And then of course, whose speech is it? That's the other kind of interesting thing about this Case you go to someone's wedding website and do you think it's the the speech of the couple um, who's getting married or do you think it's the speech of the person who created the website with input from the couple? Uh, You know the court pretty squarely said this is Lori Smith's speech. I'm not so sure that's right.
0: No, I mean like let's go. Let's take it a step further for good or for ill. Let's say Comcast decides it doesn't want to carry through its cables uh, speech that says that. Uh, cable should be more widely regulated, uh, that the owner of that the owner of Facebook says we don't want to have we don't want to allow speech that uh, we're not going to have speech go on our platform that says that social media should be made less addictive or should be more transparent or should impact kids in a different way. And there were a state or federal law that said, hey, you've got to you, you, you got to make sure you share various speech or you got to make sure that you don't rat, ratchet things down unduly or you got to make sure that, in fact, things are transparent. And the Supreme Court says, well, wait a minute. No, what Facebook is doing is their own speech. What the, what Comcast is doing through its cables, not just its own website, but in the infrastructure, is their own. That's the cake that they're making and they don't want to make a cake that is contrary to their own financial interests. Set aside religion entirely, which the court seemed able somewhat to do. Uh, What's the, either what's the limitation of that? Where am I getting that wrong? And or what's the best argument against the, weaponization is too strong a word. I'm looking for another one. But the, but the, you know, using, using the first amendment as a cudgel to block anything that democracy might do to try to make the world better.
1: No, I don't think you're wrong at all, um, and I actually I think your hypothetical is uh, is happening in the real world when it comes to social media and political campaigns. Right, that there's this push to require greater transparency uh, with respect to the political ads that are being put on speech, uh, with respect to you know AI generated content, um, and the the social media platforms have been pushing back against any sort of regulation of this. Um, and, and, you know, of course, the argument here goes to the fact that constitutional rights have never really been understood as absolute. Um, that is to say, you know, states can always have always been understood. Governments have always been understood to regulate uh, certain things for the good of the public. So, you know, the famous old example of you, you can't falsely yell uh, fire in a crowded theater. Well, that's speech, right? Someone wants to yell fire in a crowded theater. Um, that speech, but but the court has always recognized that, look, the government has a good enough reason to limit that because of the harms that it would cause. And now you're getting to a situation where the court has basically said states don't have any rationale uh, or any reason that they have to, that they can say. And what's interesting here is that It really depends on the rights at stake that you're talking about. So when it comes to free speech, the court has said, basically, we're not going to trust anything or not defer to the government's judgment on these issues. But when it comes to the voting process and voting laws, the court has said, we're going to defer entirely to the states um, in letting them enact election regulations, however they want. So there's there's not even consistency with respect to whether we're going to trust states or not. Um, and instead, you know, in a lot of these things in which you you see societal harms from the activity like speech, the court has said, well, we don't really care. Um, we're not going to let a state justify it or as we already mentioned the gun rights issue. Um, but when it comes to representation, the court is saying, well, we're going to trust the politicians on that. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it is there's there's a real disconnect there in terms of what's going on. But, you know, the best. Yes. But what's the best argument? To, to push back against that is yeah. that you do have these societal harms if you don't allow this kind of regulation. Um, you know, it's about skewed democracy I think is, is the best way to think of it is, are we going to let, you know, the few outweigh the many in the soap boxes that they have the loudspeakers that they have? Um, or can we allow the government to, to try to even the, the playing field a little bit and the court has been very, um, against, very much against a project of ensuring some form of equality for everyone, and instead, you know, letting, the, you know, being okay with the bigger actors in society have the outside voice.
0: As I'm here, in the role of armchair writer's room brainstorming strategists, I try to put myself in the shoes of, you know, maybe maybe it is a a professor, maybe it is a litigant, or maybe it is a. I, I did not clerk Supreme Court. I did clerk for the Ninth Circuit. The uh, as a as a as a as a writer of an amicus brief, or of a of an opinion, or as just the the Larry Tribe strategist of how things things might be approached. Uh, let me say this: that much of the debate around free speech, and I can't speak to the jurisprudence. I can't speak to all the legal opinions. I haven't read them all. But certainly the 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 cocktail party conversation about it, uh the even the classroom conversation about it hovers around a question sort of like how free should speech be? Or a little more clumsily, how big should the right of speech be? Or how big should freedom of speech be? And and as I'm playing kind of armchair strategist, I'm wondering if we should parse that a little bit, because. It's not just how, because once you say, well, how, and that translates pretty closely. Well, how much do you care about freedom of speech? Well, if you care about it a lot. Then, then, then it's got to be more and more expansive. But if we parse a little more and say, well, what, what is speech? What, what is speech, and what is the freedom? If we, if we define those things more specifically, defining that freedom, and define as well as defining the speech, because maybe paid speech is different than free speech. Maybe commerce is different than speech that parse a little more carefully, how are how are people either who might be able to get a fifth vote after a couple of presidents who aren't Donald Trump or who might be able to get a fifth vote now, what is the, anything else you'd want to sort of arm either the cocktail party advocate or the strategist as they're thinking about writing their own brief to help get to uh, get to a freedom of speech that it, that at least isn't weaponized or is is something that honors a deeply important american right and tradition and doesn't use that to do things that aren't american that aren't deeply part uh, important parts of our traditions or that trample upon others
1: well on the strategy front it's pretty clear that this court is um very focused and interested on history um and like i said before you know the 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 justices have sort of declared themselves uh, to be historians and are only going to uphold various rights uh, if they deem those rights and and the permutation to them to be within uh, to be consistent with history and tradition. There's it's a little weird though, of course, because you know when we're talking about speech on the internet, well, the framers couldn't have ever imagined uh, any sort of speech like that. Um, and so, how do you make the arguments that you know something like? Online advertisements, false online advertisements, AI-generated images in elections uh, um, for campaign ads um, are harmful in the same way that false advertising was uh, harmful in, you know, the seven, the late seventeen hundreds. That that's where I would go in thinking about how to convince the court that some regulations are permissible. Um, So it does require lawyers now to become historians as well. And I don't don't think that's the right approach, but I think it is the one that the court has really called out for um, as what they'll pay attention to. And that's why you see a lot of these arguments really focusing on, it's not really precedent either, right? Because again, we see the court being willing to overturn precedent. It's about the practices of the founding era. And what analogies can you make between then and now in these particular uh, rights? Because, you know, the framers didn't think that speech was going to be absolute either. Um, But you have to figure out how to couch the regulations in that sort of language.
0: Yeah. So then if if I'm playing that game, it first comes to mind, if I'm imagining the Comcast case, because you said a little bit about the social media case, but I'm actually I'm also thinking about the 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 pipe the series of tubes that carries you know that carries the message and then i don't know am i thinking about uh am i thinking about a midnight mail writer right am i thinking about the, the printer of paper am i thinking about the 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 creator of ink and then at some point the creator of ink doesn't have the power to decide exactly how that ink is going to be used how that paper is going to be written upon how that letter is going to be delivered uh and all right i will uh uh i i I, I will move on from it because I want to keep I want to move from speech to democracy, which feels like a natural progression. Another key, maybe even pro-democracy case this past term was Allen versus Milligan. You want to give the quick description of that one?
1: Yeah. And and although I'm also going to say that I'm not so sure it was really pro-democracy uh, in some of the things the court said. But uh, r- real quick, this is a, a redistricting case out of Alabama. Um, in which the state drew a congressional map um, and the way the map was drawn, the seven congressional districts in Alabama, uh, only one contained a majority that was of a racial minority, which referred to as a majority minority district. Um, the state, however, has uh, a, a black po- voting population of you know over 30 percent. Um, and so just doing some math, you would think that uh, unless you drew the lines in a way that really split up um communities of black voters you would have two districts that were majority minority Um, and so that's what the plaintiffs argued that by not having at least two districts um in the way that it split up um the black belt uh of southern Alabama um that it violated section two of the Voting Rights Act which prohibits voting rules that uh basically have a discriminatory effect that discriminate uh on the basis of race. And the lower court agreed and ordered Alabama to draw a new map, actually before the 2022 election said draw a new map. Uh, The Supreme Court put that opinion on hold, um, strangely saying there's not enough time for Alabama to draw a new map. So we're just going to put the order on hold and let you use the one that you already adopted with only one black majority district. I say strangely because Alabama had passed the map in like a matter of a week and there was still, I forget the exact timing, but plenty of time, well more than one week. Uh, before the filing deadline for candidates to to draw a new map. But uh, so again, we see the court inserting itself um, and in this instance, deferring to those in charge, um, but eventually gets to the US Supreme Court on the merits um, in uh, June 2023, in which the court agrees to strike down the map, uh, saying that the traditional understanding of section two of the Voting Rights Act holds, um, and that uh, the state needs to draw a map that's got two majority minority districts.
0: Supreme Court had previously ruled in and I and I must acknowledge, I don't know the pronunciation of it Rucho or Rucho or Ruco versus common cause, that uh, partisan gerrymandering gerrymander can't be stopped by federal courts. Uh, in other words, if a state split up a previously Democratic majority district, carve those voters up into new majority Republican districts, that's okay. Uh, however, We've also talked in this uh, on this program on this podcast how Americans have sorted themselves more and more geographically and politically. Americans are more likely to vote along the same partisan lines as their neighbors to, to significant more to a significant greater degree than uh, than you know 40 years ago. So the Venn diagram of race political leanings might not be a perfect circle. There's a lot of overlap. In your view, can the Allen decision provide any cover? To resist partisan uh partisan district drawing,
1: yeah, absolutely, because race and party are so closely correlated, particularly in the south, that you know, it's not surprising that it's the, the Republicans were um were uh, trying to uphold the previous map in alabama they're, they're the Republicans are the one that drew it, and um they're they' are surely trying to ensure a, a partisan outcome of you know, winning six of the seven congressional seats, and the Democrats were um backing the challenge that said you can't deny the history of racial discrimination in this country and not having meaningful meaningful representation for minority communities is one way in which we've perpetuated structural racism in this society so although race and party are correlated and a uh, section 2 of the voting rights act claim would be a way to attack a map that's unfair on a partisan basis you're also un- attacking the unfairness in minority representation, uh, which, again, simply perpetuates uh, the, the the racism that we've had more explicitly in uh, previous uh, decades and, you know, still ongoing, if, if perhaps slightly more implicit uh, today.
0: Speak with Alan decision for a moment. It appears or is it fair to say that it appears that Alabama may not be taking a bunch of steps to stop packing black voters into a single district? And, and it brought to mind, not to my mind, but to Kyle Curtis, our producer, the Andrew Jackson's alleged quote, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Uh, If Alabama resists efforts to draw new district district lines, uh, how is Allen, what is done? So that Allen is not a otherwise sort of hollow victory.
1: Yeah, I mean, so Alabama passed a map that did not adhere to uh, the the decision um, uh, in terms of drawing sufficient a, a map with sufficient minority representation, and so it's going to get challenged and it may go back to the Supreme Court, and it'll be very interesting to see if the court has some backbone on what it said. And, and here's why I say the decision might not be actually pro democracy to begin with. So that case was a five four ruling. Um, and Justice Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence in which he said, "Although I agree with adhering to the precedent that the court pointed to, and and uh, uh, he said, you know, this is precedent about a statute as opposed to a constitutional ruling. So the that's why you know precedent is perhaps more important to adhere to than you know the Dobbs case, for example, which overturned a, a constitutional understanding." Um, uh, Kavanaugh still said you know, it might be that we shouldn't let the Voting Rights Act Section 2 uh, exist forever, and that there may be, maybe maybe there's a time limit for how long we need the protections of Section 2 to ensure sufficient minority representation. He basically provided a blueprint for the next challenge. So, you know, what I think would happen is Alabama has passed this map, it's going to get challenged, and then they're going to argue uh, to the court that Section two is unconstitutional based on it's been around too long. That you know, conditions have changed so much that we no longer need um, this federal oversight to ensure minority representation. And of course, look at the great strides in uh, black representation since the 1960s and the and black voter participation uh, since the 1960s. As John Roberts said in the Shelby County case, things have changed in the South. Um, and so, you know, Ro- uh, Kavanaugh left open this door. Uh, and he was the fifth vote to say, okay, no, you know, Alabama didn't make the argument previously that time has run out on section two, but now they're making the argument. Um, and so that, that's, you know, whether, how do you count to five? We'll see.
0: I want to get to at least two more things. I want to get to your book and your upcoming book. And I want to also though, talk about uh, the off the court stuff that uh, if, well, I'll, I'll cite my wife uh, who cares a lot about politics and democracy, is not a is not a lawyer recovering other otherwise, and just sort of thinks the Supreme Court is hogwash. She would use harsher language. Uh, she thinks how are, how does anybody think that these folks are legitimate? And she does it based on, of course, you know she she uh, more uh, more like personally takes the decision in Dobbs and I have the emotional capacity to take, right? I'm not in the same, I don't have her lived experience. Uh, but the, uh, but there is a question of legitimacy, and she wonders, you know, she speculates, how, how does John Roberts, why does he why would he want to be, why would he want to lead the court that was the was the bad guy court? And I'll use the word guy on purpose, the bad guy court for all of history or one of the worst courts of all of history. He well, wouldn't want to do that. And that ends up maybe defining how we count to five, for instance. Uh, and most of that is in the context of the decisions that are made, of the opinions that are written. Then there seems to be some other stuff going on that if we're worried, ultimately, if we're worried about that an anti-majoritarian system of government that is an anti-democracy system of government that a is pro-oligarchy and plutocracy system of government, and that one of the tools for that is... Buying presidential elections, stealing Supreme Court seats, packing a Supreme Court with six votes, and then doing it by not only it, buying off elections but maybe even by buying off Supreme Court justices—it starts sounding like the stuff of a bad novel. It starts sounding like the stuff. Oh, wait a minute! This isn't just this isn't just partisan sniping. This isn't just something so that MSNBC or Fox News has something to talk about or that we have a topic on a podcast. This starts to sound. Kind of scary and kind of bad uh, comments. What a terrible question I just asked, but I've at least got feelings and thoughts on the subject.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's clearly a legitimacy crisis at the court. Uh, there's clearly an ethics problem at the court. You've got these, you know, news reports about Justice Thomas, um, you know, getting private, you know, plane rides with his buddy. Um, you've got uh, issues involving uh, Sam Alito um, and. He, so th- there's clearly an ethics problem here. Um, you know, that said, uh, I think that having um, uh, a long-term appointment is probably good for the court in general. Maybe not lifetime. I think you know a term limits would make some sense for Supreme Court justices. Um, you know, 18-year year term limits. So every president gets to choose two. This also, you know, would would avoid this, you know, sort of craziness that. The whole world changes and doctrine changes because the justice da- happens to die at a particular time. Right. You know, imagine if uh, if uh, Merrick Garland had actually gotten through when he was nominated in, in you know, uh, end of February of uh, 2020. And if Ruth Bader Ginsburg had not died in October and or September, I guess it was uh, of 2020, right before the election. Right. E- the court looks very different. Uh, today than, than it, it does now. Um, so uh, so there's an ethical
0: brief needn't be how it works. Denzel Washington or whoever the character was imagined when the book was written, uh, thinking the court was going to be shaped by murder. That doesn't need to be how it works.
1: Yeah. A- a- and so there's clearly an ethics problem, right? These allegations involving Thomas uh, are, are really concerning. Um, not so much for, and th- this is just my own view here. I'm not so concerned that these uh that that his buddies you know harlan Crow and whatnot are changing the way he decides cases i think thomas has a way that he thinks the world should should operate i think he has a particularly particular jurisprudence i think you know regardless of whether he's getting the plane rides or not he's ruling in these ways but it doesn't feel right for society at large for you know him to uh to, to have these benefits because he's a supreme court justice and yet he's deciding all these important issues that, uh, that affect every single one of us. So, um, so I'm not so I'm not so sure that these scandals have led to different outcomes on, uh, on particular cases, but I do think that they demonstrate the way in which the many of the Supreme Court justices are just sorely out of touch with the everyday lives of most Americans.
0: I think about it a little bit like I think about campaign contributions, and I think about it with sort of lobby boondoggle trips that i I don't think it is it is hard to draw a causal line between a given campaign contribution and a given decision. but but it is not hard to understand the cultural implications. And I don't mean big cultural. I mean, I mean the microculture of a decision-making body when, these are just the kind of people that have access. These are just the kind of, this is the kind of thing that we do. These are who are important and these are who are a little, who's, this is a little bit who is less important. Not only the signal that sends, but yeah, the culture of decision-making that that sets in the country and who thinks they've got access and oh, my buddy is a Supreme Court justice. And by the way, do I think that it impacted how Clarence Thomas ruled in Dobbs? I, not even for half a moment. Do I think there is any decision then in the context of decades, in the context of decades that could be impacted by a close relationship with someone who is also a financial relationship, I think the odds of that are actually kind of high, right? The fact that they have some conversation on a fishing boat or in a private plane about some darn thing, like that's not that, that's not that surprising or the influence ends up flexing itself in ways even off the docket. Right. Who gets appointed to what thing, who gets suggested for what position, just creating an overall culture that is a little getting away from democracy and to- towards oligarchy. Anyway, it's a little general, but I, I have I have concern more than just how it smells.
1: Well, and, and I think you raise a good point about the types of people that make it to the Supreme Court. Right. I mean, you know, virtually all of them went to either Harvard or Yale. Uh, Law school, right? You got a certain kind of person who has the ability to go to those schools, who gets that kind of an education, um, that is very different from uh, other sorts of very, very well qualified people who might get on the court. So, you know, I think this question of ethics and the court absolutely needs an ethics code that applies to the justices, uh, uh, whether there currently is not one. But this question of ethics, I think, is is a bigger one, a broader one, with respect to the kinds of people that even get to that position, as well as um, you know the question I already mentioned of the term limits of the life tenure. You know, I'm not someone who thinks that we should expand the court in terms of size um, because I think it's a tit for tat, right? Once Democrats, you know, okay, Democrats move to 15, okay, Republicans uh, get in charge and they'll move to 21, then go back and forth. And to me, that's not that's not the right answer. there is institutional reform that needs to happen but it needs to come in a way that is seen legitimate by both sides
0: yeah the, 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 one could argue in favor of a different number of justices for a number of reasons but the problem isn't the the problem that we're addressing is a lagging indicator problem not a num, not a numerosity problem of how many people are are, are making it right it's it's yeah. who who gets to wield the power not just how many people wield that power uh But I want to get to the thing I think you said about that, that code of conduct. So there is a code of conduct for United States justices. It was passed in 1973, uh, an important year in U.S. history in multiple ways. Uh, Maybe I only think that because it also happens to be my birth year. How does it apply? Explain how it applies to judges in the United States, but not Supreme Court judges because they're justices.
1: Because Congress said so? (laughs) Because the military is different. Yeah, I mean it's just you know the law the, the the code applies to um to judges on the courts of appeals and the and the district court. Uh, now there's you know there are other professional codes of conduct um, and whatnot that you know in theory any lawyer should be uh, adhering to, but in terms of a formal code of ethics, um, uh, there's not one that currently applies to Supreme Court justices. Um, now I know there's been you know calls to have that occur, whether Congress imposes it, some of the justices have said that. They think that would be a conflict of interest of separation, not conflict, not conflict of separation of powers concern. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, I think there's been some internal conversations among the justices about uh self imposing one, you know, states' courts, state courts do this all the time, right? Every state, I don't know about every, but I, at least mo- most state courts have a code of conduct that applies to all judges in their state. It's it is a little absurd that, um, there's not a, an explicit code of conduct that that these nine people get carved out. But again, it it demonstrates the broader picture of why are these nine people seen as as particularly special? you know yeah again, to like thinking about institutional design. why not have the courts of appeals judges, the, the circuit judges um, sit by designation? On the U.S. Supreme Court. And yeah, that's my
0: favorite. My, my 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 favorite is is a you still get a lifetime appointment to be a federal judge, uh, and to be a federal appellate court judge. But that doesn't mean your whole life has to be spent on the Supreme Court. And you know, pick yeah. a pick a number of years there, and either you rotate on or rotate off just for that period, or or it creates a pool that's even a little broader than that. Right? I think there are a number of a number of, of steps in that direction. And I do to the reformers who listen, I do say like, I, I think louder on reform. I think more power towards reform, more energy towards reform, and be really smart on the kind on the kind of reform you want, right? Be and and that kind's of got to actually get to solving the problem and not just the problem of one's particular political predilections, but the structural decision making problem. Uh,
1: yeah, and and just to that point, let me add that in my please. own view, maybe this just comes from my perspective of being in a very red state of Kentucky and having had some success working with the Republican Secretary of State on voting laws. And you know during the pandemic. Kentucky made national news of this is how to run an election the right way. Um, we have a uh, we have a photo ID law for voting, but it's considered the most mild form of photo ID in the country. Um, and I helped to kind of craft that law and get a lot of provisions that were really fail safe mechanisms. Now, I don't think photo ID laws are a good idea, but the writing was on the wall that it was happening in Kentucky. And so how do we get it to a point where it's going to harm as few people as possible if we have to have a law? And I think we were very successful. That's all to say that I think. If you go to the kind of extreme of what you want on the left, then you're going to get nowhere. I do think still compromise um, is important to achieve a meaningful and lasting reform, um, you know, in a country that is dominated by the right currently. Well, at least in terms of the political structures, not uh, not
0: not not the electoral majority, but the but the in terms of who wields power economically, religiously, militarily. Uh, in terms of ownership of media, in terms of seats on the in, in terms of seats in the uh, on the Supreme Court, in terms of presidency, the presidency over the last hundred years, et cetera, et cetera, really, since really since Tip O'Neill lost Congress or LBJ lost Congress, it's kind of been sort of that way. But, uh, you know, one of the reasons I think and I'm going off topic a little bit, but one of the reasons I bring up the Lochner thing is that if we read the voting habits of younger Americans, if we see and we think of younger Americans as sort of a leading indicator of where the country uh, may be headed, it's one of the reasons why I could imagine as, as if I were a right-wing strategist, I'd really want to lock in some stuff for a long time so that the blowback from Dobbs and Trump didn't come back and bite me down, you know, for at least more years down the road. I do want to ask this, uh, what concerns do you have so it's about court legitimacy? And I kind of, I kind of wonder if court legitimacy matters. Like, what happens if the court is not legitimate? Therefore, what, right? Like, is it then their governors who don't have, uh, don't feel they need to do what they're told? Is it that presidents don't think they need to do what they're told? Is that ultimately, but practically speaking, what is our concern about legitimacy? Right now, I I should say right now, it was two months ago, Gallup poll: 75% of Americans said they lacked confidence in the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Why does that matter?
1: I think for two reasons. I mean, one, of course, uh, you don't want to get a situation where people are just openly defying Supreme Court orders, right? The, the, The court requires, its legitimacy requires that people kind of adhere to the decision, you know? Lots of people hated the Bush v. Gore decision, but people accepted it, um, including Al Gore himself. um, And that led to a transition, uh, a peaceful transition where there wasn't violence on the streets. Right now, we had violence on the streets on January 6th, uh, 2021. um, But, you know, if we want to have a peaceful democracy, then you need to have people accept court decisions, even if they disagree with them. And if you get so many of these in which the court feels illegitimate, then you get people... You know, in just on the practical sense, not adhering to it, and then again, of course, I think there's just the confidence in the government uh, in general, right? We want to live in a society in which uh, governmental uh, bodies are are seen as uh, as properly representative. Now, the Supreme Court is not a representative body, but it's actually supposed to be anti-majoritarianism, anti-majority in terms of protecting the rights of the political minorities. And when you don't get that, again, you get sort of undermining of the very idea of democracy. Um, you know, why did, why did the, the, the Trumpers take to the streets on January 6th? Because they didn't trust the government institutions and they were refusing to accept uh, their electoral loss. Um, that's where you really get break, a breakdown of democracy. So there's kind of the practical: are people going to adhere the decisions? I think people still have been, even if they disagree with them. Um, but that leads to a very concerning place for democracy as a whole.
0: You got a book coming out: voters versus the court. The troubling story about the Supreme Court has undermined voting rights. I think I added the word Supreme Court in the headline title when I introed the very beginning of our conversations. But it's voters versus the court. Troubling story of how the Supreme Court has undermined voting rights. Uh, I think that's getting published next year. Yeah, it's coming out next year. It's a follow-up to your book uh, a few years ago, Vote for the U.S. or Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Uh, Any teaser you want to give about what to expect on the upcoming book or anything that's surprising you in your research and your work on it?
1: Yeah, so the the book is a little bit of a follow up of of the first book, uh, Vote for Us. The first book is kind of a a positive story about democracy. It's about the good news in voting rights. Um, And when I tell people that they think the book's not even a page long, because is there any good news in voting rights? But actually, there is. There's been a lot of movement um, on the ground. You've talked about a lot of some of this stuff before, I think, Um, on the ground with respect to making the voting process easier, more inclusive, more convenient um, through various reforms like vote by mail, ranked choice voting, lowering the voting age to 16. And so that book tells the story uh, or the stories of democracy champions all over the country promoting uh, this easier voting access. The next book is not so positive. Um, the, the the book, the, the, the Voters Versus the Court, um, it basically tells the story of how the Supreme Court has really undermined voting rights. You know, in the 1960s, uh, the court had upheld the fundamental right to vote as the most important right in democracy, that everything starts with the voter. And through a series of cases, and it's not just the ones that people think of more recently like Citizen United or Shelby County, uh, the, the Voting Rights Act case. You know, it really started in the 1970s. Um, there's a chapter about the, a case from uh, 1974 involving felon disenfranchisement. You know, why is it constitutional to uh, for states to deprive individuals convicted of a felony from the constitutional fundamental Right to vote, and the court planted these seeds in a few cases in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to get to where we are today, where basically the politicians win and the voters lose. And so the book tells the story of the this handful of cases um, going behind the scenes. I have a lot of really interesting uh, anecdotes from the litigants uh, involved, the real people involved in the cases, the lawyers. Um, so it's written for uh, the general public and tells. The stories of the cases and in doing so tells a narrative about how the Supreme Court has really undermined voting rights in a way that's very dangerous for democracy.
0: How did you get into this mess? How did you start prioritizing democracy in your work?
1: So, I, you know, in undergrad, I went to George Washington University in D.C. in undergrad, and I, I was a political science major. And then I went to law school and took a course on voting rights law and sort of saw how these issues uh, of political science and law were intersecting, um, and then uh, what I started to realize is that these issues of political power and the legal issues surrounding them impact every single other aspect of our society. Um, you know, didn't help that then we got it a handful of, of dangerous rulings like Bush v. Gore and and Crawford, the voter ID case that uh, refused to strike down Indiana's uh, voter ID law in 2008 um and so I sort of really saw the importance of these issues to everything else that that happens um you know my dad uh said when i when i said I'm, I'm you know becoming a law professor and i'm focusing on voting rights and election law he said oh so your work is only relevant once every four years um and sort of like you know and then he asked me a few years later he said so did you know that you know your work would be relevant all the time and always and unfortunately uh, what's been bad for the country is is good for th- good for me professionally, and things have been way too good.
0: You're in a growth industry <laughs> <laughs> yeah, figuring I out, wish f- figure out avoiding the collapse of democracy in the United States of America. It's you know, who knew that was going to be a good bet, like never years ago.
1: yeah, I wish it weren't. but uh, but you know these things are are so important. And you know the the extent that I can use my my research and my voice to try to create some positive change, I, I'm hopeful that uh, my work has been able to do that.
0: Professor Joshua Douglas, law professor at the University of Kentucky, where, by the way, my stepmom went to school, contributed to the Washington Monthly, author of the upcoming book, The Voters Versus the Court. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for your time today, and thanks for being a Democracy Nerd.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it. This was
0: fun. Be well. Democracy Nerds, recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seliger, Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review, hope you will, and follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, democracy.